today, what we're going to talk about is the fact that the, Paul's authority is from God. And, and last, last week, we brought that out in the fact that he, he wrote them. He said, hey, I did not get this gospel from any man. I didn't get it from the other apostles. And I was not commissioned by any other man. I was commissioned by God. Today, what we're going to see is the authority in Paul's gospel also comes from the fact that he is united with the other apostles commissioned by Jesus. It's not a different gospel that Paul preached and Peter preached and James preached and John preached. He's going to show us today it's the same gospel. So these Judaizers telling you otherwise are lying. Okay, but to get our bearings, I want to show us a couple things. Those of you who are geography and history buffs are going to say thank you. Those of you who are not are going to say, oh, man. So half the room will be happy. Maybe half of it will be not, not so happy. But some of you are wondering, who are these Galatians that, that Paul's writing to? If I say the word Galatian to you, what do, what do you think of? Well, here it is in the middle of the, the Roman Empire, Galatia. Who were the people? Well, historians tell us that they were originally Celtic people that migrated to this part of the Roman Empire. Anybody with Celtic blood in you? You, you may have a relative in the distant past among the Galatians. And initially they were up north. That was the part known as Galatia. But over time, it spread south and came to be known as Galatia down here. And though there's controversy as to whether Paul sent the letter down here or up here, I believe it was to these cities down here, and we'll explain why later. I'd encourage you to read what happened when Paul and Barnabas went to those cities. If you read Acts 13 and 14, it's a, a vibrant history to kind of give you the background of what happened. One of my favorite stories there, and you may remember it in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, and the people there said, hey, it's the gods Zeus and Hermes. And all the people started bringing offerings and sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they said, no, 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 we're men just like you. Let us tell you about the real God. And they went on to preach Jesus there. And, and Acts tells us that many people became disciples. But you may also remember that Paul was stoned so badly by the Jews who were angry at his message that he was left for dead outside that city. But then when he came to, rather than walking away and heading on to the next city, you know what he did? He got up and went back in <laughs> and started preaching again. That's, that's just one of the things that happened there. I also want to give us uh, just a short history of Paul's early ministry to help us get our bearings where we're at time-wise, because a lot of us know about the later ministry, first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, but the first part's not talked about as much. So courtesy of ESV.org, and we'll put the whole timeline of Paul's life and ministry at that link on our Facebook page. We're just going to look at part of it here to help us get our bearings where we're at. Let's start with the birth. A.D. 5 to 10, he was born in Tarsus. 15 to 20, he was trained in Jerusalem as a Pharisee by Gamaliel. Let's go on to the next one. 
He was an avid persecutor of the Christian church before Christ. We, he wreaked havoc on the church. So you see the death and resurrection of Christ, 30, 33 A.D., 31 to 34, he, he Paul, was present at Stephen's stoning. You remember Stephen's stoning in the book of Acts? And he was giving approval to it. So that's the side of the equation he was on at the time. He actively persecuted Christians. Let's go on. Events around his conversion, which we talked about last week, 33, 34, you have that trip to Damascus where he's going to, to persecute more Christians, but the bright light, the voice from heaven, the, the, the big turning point. 33 to 37, he stays in Damascus a short time, then he leaves for Arabia where we talked last week was, was likely a period of up to three years where he got this download from God about the truth of, of the gospel. What does it really mean? All those Old Testament scriptures, how they point to Jesus. Goes back to Damascus, and then he had that infamous escape where he was lowered out in a basket. Next slide. Early ministry. This was the meeting we talked about last week. He wrote about it in Galatians 1. He, he goes to Jerusalem for the first time, meets with Peter for 15 days, sees James, the Hellenists try to kill him, so he leaves back to Tarsus. He ministers there for a while. And that's where we left off last week. Where are we at this morning? This is his second visit to Jerusalem. I believe that's the visit he's talking about in Galatians 2. There's debate about that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he hangs out with Barnabas in Antioch, and then he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And if you remember in Acts chapter 11, they took with them a gift a financial gift for the Jewish Christians there because a famine had hit the empire and they were in dire need. Many wonder, you see this throughout Paul's ministry, this love for the poor in Jerusalem. Was this similar to Zacchaeus? You remember when Zacchaeus got saved, he had stolen all this money from people and then after he got saved, God transformed his life and he just paid back more than he had taken? Well, Saul had persecuted the Christians in Jerusalem. He had torn apart families, probably leaving many of them in dire straits. So in addition to God's leading, was some of this his way of pouring back into the area where he had hurt? I love that question. I don't doubt that that's legit. But when we get into Galatians 2, that's the meeting. I believe first mission in council. He takes his first missionary journey for about one and a half years in that's where he hits the city of Galatia, that, that we, the area of Galatia that we just talked about. Uh, then he goes back to Antioch with Barnabas, writes the book of Galatians. That even is up to debate. If you want to look into the debate, uh, dive in on your own time. It's worth a good study. I believe it was here because there was an important meeting in A.D. 48-49. This is where we'll stop on the history he goes back to Jerusalem again for the Apostolic Council. Okay, let's take a breath. <laughs> and we covered a lot of ground there. Do you remember or know what happened at that Apostolic Council? That's in Acts chapter 15. He met with a large group of Jewish Christians to discuss the issue that's being discussed in the book of Galatians. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow the law of Moses? And there were bold statements made by James, as Jewish as they come, by Peter, 
the apostle lifted up by many above the others. And there was even a letter sent to Antioch to say, no, you Gentiles don't have to follow the Mosaic law. Some people believe the meeting in chapter 2 of Galatians was that meeting. Why do I not believe it's that meeting? Why do many scholars not believe it's that meeting? Because Paul doesn't overtly mention what happened at that council. And it seems that he would. If he's making the case he's making, he would say, hey, guys, this is what James said at the council. Here's what Peter said at the council. And they even sent a letter. He doesn't mention that. In addition to the fact that, as you'll see when we dive into Galatians 2, he describes it as a private meeting with those who were influential. Acts 15 was a large kind of meeting. So now, let's step back and say, are we going to take anything home from all of this history, geography, and in this passage in God's Word today? I hope so. I hope so, because we're going to see a couple more reasons, number one, that we can have confidence in the gospel. Bottom line, because his gospel is the same as the apostles. But I, I want us to also see two things that believers can apply in our lives today based on what we see in these 14 verses. To set the stage for those two applications and prepare our minds, I want to show you a picture. How many of you felt that wind yesterday? <laughs> it was crazy, right? Sometime mid-afternoon, I grabbed Evan and Luke and said, hey, you guys want to go fly a kite? That was the easiest getting a kite up that we've ever had. In fact, it was difficult getting it in. It would crash, and then it would take off again. That wind would just take it. But I was, I was thinking about flying a kite. And I want you to hear this, this statement. For a kite to reach its full potential, the power of the wind must be tempered by the tension of a string. Right? For a kite to reach its full potential, the power of the wind must be tempered by the tension of a string. Because what happens if you cut that string? The kite crashes, right? Right? Why do I share that? Well, I believe there are some things in the Christian life that have to be balanced in order for us to reach our full potential that God wants us to. I'm going to share two of those as we go through this passage. The first one I want to share with you is that the power of time alone with God must be balanced by unity and fellowship with other believers. Okay, why do I say that looking at Paul's life? Well, if as we believe is true, he was out in Arabia for all those years getting that download with God, what we see in this passage acts as a counterbalance. That was true, but Paul was no loner. Paul was no loner. He would travel here to Jerusalem showing his unity and fellowship with the rest of the church. And as we think about that, I want to ask you, which side of that equation do you tend to be stronger on and which side do you tend to be weaker on? The, the time alone with God? Is that your forte? But then you look at unity and fellowship with other believers and you're kind of like, man, I, I'm kind of becoming like a spiritual hermit. <laughs> 
Or is it the other way? The unity and fellowship with other believers is off the charts. I'm always out with people, but, but that time alone with God in His Word, prayer, honestly, I could use some growing. And think about that as we go through this. Another Jerusalem visit. Galatians 2, 1 through 14. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And we'll talk about Titus a little bit later, but you all know who Barnabas was? Remember the book of Acts? He shows up pretty early in there. He was one of the first believers selling his property so that those in need could, could benefit from it. His name means son of encouragement. In fact, when Paul first got saved and the other believers had legitimate concerns about having him with them, Based on his past, Barnabas was the one that put his arm around him and said, no, it's legit. He is a Christian now. That's, that's the Barnabas we're talking about. They go up to Jerusalem with Titus. Verse 2, Paul says, I went up because of a revelation. Now, many believe this is a kind of a defensive point on Paul's part. The Judaizers would love to say, well, the reason Paul went to Jerusalem was he was getting called on the carpet by the other apostles, and, and he had to give an account for, for what he was doing out there, preaching this gospel. That wasn't it at all. He says, I went up because of a revelation. In fact, if it's the famine visit in Acts 11 that we talked about, there was a revelation tied with that. A prophet named Agabus got a revelation from the Lord that the saints in Jerusalem needed help. And so Paul went. Went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, there it is, that's why I don't believe that's the large meeting in Acts 15, though privately before those who seemed influential, set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And that's present tense proclaim. He's telling the Galatians, I set before them the same gospel I preach today and preach to you. I, I laid it out before the apostles. Why? He says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, based on what we know of chapter 1, when he says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, can that possibly mean that he's saying, I wanted them to check out the gospel I'm preaching and make sure it's correct? No, he had told us adamantly, I got the gospel through a revelation from God. I was commissioned by God to share that gospel. So what could that possibly mean? Well, most scholars believe what he was actually checking was to see if they were on the same page with him. Because if he went out and preached that gospel, but the authorities authorized Judaizers to go out and cut the legs off of it by saying, hey, no, 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 Paul was wrong. You got to follow the Mosaic law and you got to be circumcised. It would feel like that. It would feel like all his work was, was undermined, right? Does that make sense? Go on to verse 3. Some of you all like object lessons in sermons. Paul brought along the ultimate object lesson to this meeting. Verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. At this meeting where they're going to discuss circumcision in the Mosaic Law, he brings along a Greek man named Titus who had accepted the Lord and was not circumcised. Talk about an object lesson. 
right? He's there at this meeting in Jerusalem with all these Jewish Christians. Now, some of you recognize the name of Titus. Paul would later write him a letter that we know as Titus. Titus became the pastor of a church of Cretans. That was the actual location, the Isle of Crete. It wasn't a description. <laughs> well, some people say it was a description of the people. That's why we got that name today. But it's this Titus, the, the object lesson, an uncircumcised Greek Christian. Why does he share this with the people in Galatia? Well, he wants to show them, what would the Jewish leaders say about that? In the heart of Judaism, the capital, Jerusalem, what would they say about that? Well, he says right here, even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. It's almost like, take that, Judaizers, lying to the people in Galatia. The authorities in Jerusalem didn't make Titus do it in Jerusalem. Why are you trying to make him do it over in Galatia? Okay, you, you see the logic of this object lesson. Yet, verse 4, because of false brothers, some paraphrases say sham Christians, people who claim the name of Christ, but have no relationship with him. And similar to the wolves, Paul would later warn the elders of Ephesus about in Acts 20, those who come in among us and, and begin to speak another gospel to lead the flock astray. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in. Now we don't know if they slipped into Antioch where Paul had been or into this actual meeting, but the words here, secretly brought in, who slipped in, it's Greek words used almost like an undercover military operation, like spies trying to get in to this meeting. It says it right here, to, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. To, to, to learn what it, what it, what's being taught about this salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus. And how can we use that against them? That kind of mindset to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That's how Paul saw it. We may think of it as no big deal today, but Paul realized that if you start adding human works as a basis for salvation to Jesus Christ, it is slavery. It underestimates the fullness of Jesus' sacrifice, the it is finished. It also underestimates the fact the Bible says the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. You start adding things to your basis for salvation. It is slavery. You will be chasing a carrot that you will never catch. And your eternal destiny is at stake. How did Paul respond to these sham Christians bringing this pressure in? Probably pressure in Titus to be circumcised. Verse 5, he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. There are hills worth dying on. The truth of the gospel by salvation in Jesus Christ alone is one of those hills. And it's not just for you personally or me personally. It's for those who are affected if we let that slide. That's what he says right here. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians. I love you enough to take that stand against these 
sham Christians. Verse 6, he says, From those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Later on, we're going to learn that these men are James and Peter and John. The Judaizers would love to be able to tell the Galatians, Paul missed some stuff. He got some stuff wrong. And though he may have been well-intentioned, you need to hear this and this and this as well. They would love to make the point that the other apostles would have added other things. So Paul says, did, did Peter, James, and John add anything to what he was sharing? No. He says they added nothing to me. Nothing. Take that, Judaizers. They added nothing. Verse 6, when, when he was talking about them, he says, those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Some have wondered, was he being kind of disrespectful to his fellow apostles? Did he have some bitterness or angst with them? And the answer I came across time and time again, and it makes sense to me, is no. He's, he's speaking to the Galatians, where likely these Judaizers had lifted these other apostles so high above Paul. In writing like this, he's, he's not saying he doesn't respect them, but he's saying, I'm not going to lift them up like that. They're apostles just like me. They're apostles just like me. God shows no partiality. I respect what God's doing in their lives, but I'm not going to idolize them. He says they added nothing to me. What a great point to write this church wrestling. Is Jesus enough or not? On the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. They saw. He was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Peter to the circumcised. Was it a different gospel that Paul and Peter preached? No. It was a different crowd, right? And it wasn't a hard, fast line. Because you'll remember Peter, right? He took the gospel to Gentile Cornelius. You'll also remember that Paul, when he went to cities around the Roman Empire, where did he often stop first? The Jewish synagogues. So it's not a hard, fast line, but it's talking about primary callings. We see that even today, don't we? Every Christian is called to share the same gospel in this world. That's why we pray for overflow, for, for the good news of the gospel to overflow outside of these walls into the lives of the people we know. What we say, pray for opportunities, look for the open door, seize the moment. That's true for every Christian, but who you're called to do that with is likely different than who I'm called to do that with. That's what he's saying. And they realized it was the same gospel, the same God at work in Paul that was at work in Peter. Verse 9 says, When James and Cephas and John, that's James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. That's a great line in his argument. They saw God's grace in my life with their own eyes. Not only my salvation, but his grace in my calling. When they perceived it, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. 
Now today, a handshake means little. In fact, they were virtually knocked off the map for a couple years with COVID, right? But today it's just, hey, hey, hey. Back then, the right hand of fellowship meant a whole lot more than a handshake today. When he talks about the right hand of fellowship, many have said that what he's talking about there is, is a, almost a, a formal statement of commitment that we are partners in this together, almost a covenant that you and I are on the same mission together. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So take that again, Judaizers, in Galatia. They didn't say I had to add something to my gospel. They didn't speak against it. In fact, they said we're in this together, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. We touched on that earlier, and you see that all through Paul's ministry, right? As he's writing to churches even later on in his ministry, hey, I'm coming to to take a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Please have your funds ready so we can take it. Let's never forget that as we hold on to the truth of the gospel, there's also a heart of Jesus for those in need that should accompany us as a church and as individuals. I think we'll have more and more opportunities to serve in that regard as we continue down the path we're on. What a great display of unity, right? between Paul and the other apostles. Well, let's go back to where we started with that point. In order for a Christian's life to reach its full potential, there must be this balance, right, between time alone with God and unity and fellowship with other Christians. Would God speak to you on either of those fronts today? How is your time alone with God? How is your unity and fellowship with other Christians? Now, as we go on to the second and final of our two points here, we're going to look at an interesting showdown in Scripture. And I'm I'm just going to headline it with this. The power of love. Some of you guys think about Huey Lewis. (laughs) The power of love must be tempered by passionate defense of the truth. Read verse 11 with me and see what happened here. This is an interesting passage. When, when Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch, that's a, a Gentile city where, where Jews and, and Christians fellowship together. At least Paul and Barnabas were Jews. Maybe there were more, but there were many Gentiles. They likely shared the Lord's Supper together. They likely ate together. In fact, if you remember, Antioch was the first place that God's people who followed Jesus were called Christians. And even though it may have been derogatory for some who said it, when you think about the loving fellowship and the unity there, I think of what Christ said. What? They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Loved or hated, people knew this group was was a united body, Gentile and Jew. So Peter comes down there from Jerusalem, and Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This, again, is another point to these Galatians. If you think Peter or any apostle is, is infallible and above me or the truth of the gospel, you're wrong. 
Everyone is subject to the truth of the gospel, be they apostle, prophet, pastor. Oh, Paul opposes him to his face. All right. Why? Because Peter stood condemned. Why? What, what in the world did Peter do here that would cause Paul to stand up to? This is verse 12. Before certain men came from James, James in Jerusalem. But many have pointed out James likely didn't send them to say this. They probably just knew James. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. But when these men from Jerusalem came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. You try to think about what's going on there. I think about the men's breakfast we had yesterday. Greg brought sandwiches from McDonald's. And there were three piles. There were egg McMuffins. There were sausage McMuffins. There were sausage McMuffins with egg. So imagine Peter shows up at our men's breakfast and he sees sausage McMuffin with egg. He says, oh, yeah. He grabs that sandwich and he sits down at the table with the rest of us guys and he starts eating that. Says, Boy, this is good. It's so good to be a new covenant Christian, isn't it? And then there's a knock at the door and a couple of Jewish Christians show up. Peter hears their voice and he knows who they are. And he quickly takes his sausage McMuffin with egg, what's left of it, and sticks it under the table where Will's dog can get it. <laughs> Finish it off, and then he hurries to the table and grabs an egg McMuffin. He says, okay. <laughs> and he, he sits back down. Why is this such a big deal? Well, Peter knew better. Peter knew Deep down in his heart, it was right and wholesome to fellowship with Gentiles and that they were no longer under the Old Testament food laws. How did he know that? <laughs> you remember Acts 10? He was called by God to go see a Gentile named Cornelius, and the way God prepared him, Peter's on his roof, and, and three times he gets his vision from God of unclean animals, and God says, get up and eat, and Peter says, no, Lord. No, Lord, no, three times. If, if, you, if it takes you a number of times to learn things sometimes like it does me, I think we can all relate to Peter. Peter worked in threes a lot. Sometimes it takes a lot of times with me too. Three times God did that. And he said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And that was all to prepare him for a knock at the door later on. A knock at the door from some people from Gentile Cornelius' house. Hey, our master wants you to come and share the gospel with him. God had prepared him for that. God had told him, Peter, when they come knocking, you go with them. This is of me. And Peter went, and he went into Cornelius' house, and he shared the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And Cornelius and many others got saved right in front of Peter's eyes. The Holy Spirit came on them, and he went back and told the folks in Jerusalem about it. So he knew. He knew. But he acted differently here. And what happened? Verse 13. Peter did it, got rid of eating with the Gentiles, separated himself. It says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Hypocrisy is an interesting word. It means from under the mask. 
actors in this time would wear masks. They were called hypocrites, pretending to be someone they weren't. Peter inside knew it was right to eat with Gentiles, but here he pretended to be someone he wasn't by pulling back from them. And the Jews followed him, rest of them at that table. The unity in this fellowship at Antioch was being shattered because Peter, who they looked up to, took this step. So that even Barnabas, Paul says, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And he, he fell in, wonderful Barnabas, the power of our actions to influence others. That's important for us to remember. It's true of Apostle Peter, it's true of pastors, it's true of church members, the, the power of, of our lives to influence those that we know and love in the church. It's true of fathers and mothers in our homes, the power of our actions to influence the families. God has blessed us with the danger of leading others astray. Verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that their conduct, Peter's and the Jews and Barnabas, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying, Peter, just paraphrase, you've been eating with Gentiles, you've been eating pork chops and bacon for months now. <laughs> and you're a Jew. And now you're pulling away, acting like where your actions say those Gentiles have to stop eating pork, they have to live like Jews. What a, what a concise barb Paul sent at Peter. Did Paul love Peter? Absolutely. And Peter loved Paul. You see that at the end of his letter later on, either first or second Peter, he talks about Paul and the scriptures that he wrote. They loved each other. But as I said, our love must be balanced by the truth. Biblical love rejoices with the truth. We live in a world where if I look at that wood there and say it's red, some in the world would tell you to say, yes, Scott, if you feel like that's red, that's red. You're right. You're right. I can support that. That's how many in the world think, especially about moral issues or issues of faith. Biblical faith is different. If I say that's red, you're going to be loving and peaceful, yes, but you're going to lovingly say, Scott, that's blue. And let me explain to you why. Let me show you what red is. You understand the difference? Biblical love is always balanced by a healthy defense in holding on to the truth. In John 17, when Jesus prayed for unity, let me say it again. He also went on to pray, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. Our unity is based on the truth of God's word. They say, what was at stake here? What if, what if Paul had just kind of been quiet and let this separation spread? Well, most important, the salvation of grace by faith in Jesus alone was at stake. Okay? Peter knew that up here, but his actions were saying something different. That's why in verse 14, 
Paul had said, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Peter didn't say anything wrong. He probably even didn't believe anything wrong about the gospel, but his actions said something else. That leads to a great question for all of us. It's possible to believe right and not even say anything theologically incorrect, but for our actions to deny what we believe. Is there any place in our lives where, if we're honest, the way I carry myself in this world denies the truth of what I say I believe up here? Salvation by grace was at stake. What about this? Would the church be just a small sect of Judaism? Or would it become the worldwide move of God that it has? Would there be two fellowships, the Gentile church and the Jewish church? Or, or would we realize the mystery of God that Paul later called it, that Jew and Gentile alike are one body, all coming to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. That's what was at stake. That's why Paul spoke the truth. Now I think about Peter's decision. Well, it's always time for lunch. <laughs> Just a little bit longer, we'll let you get there. <laughs> I think about Peter's decision. In and of itself, was it okay for, for Peter to have a meal with just Jews? Is there anything wrong with that? Just out of context, just, no, that's fine. He can sit down and have a meal with just Jews, right? Just, just as much as he could sit down and eat with Jews and Gentiles, okay? There's a lot of decisions in life like that. Romans 14 and 15, Paul gets into it over the controversy of, of meat that's been offered to idols, right? I want to talk to us about decision-making in moments like that. And I want to look at our decisions at three levels. I want to start with the outermost level and move in towards the heart. Outermost, I want to talk about the move, the action that you take. That's the outermost level of our decisions, right? When you think about a certain action that you're going to take or not take, we need to ask a couple questions. Is there a moral component to this action itself? Is there anything in God's word that tells me this action is right or wrong? It can stop there. If you have a clear answer in God's word, that, that answers it, right? Many actions are clearly laid out as right or wrong in here. Is the move that I'm about to take or not take shaped by the truth of God's word? Or is it shaped by traditions that have come into my life from elsewhere? I think that's some of what the early Jews were dealing with. It wasn't just the Old Testament laws that had certain food requirements. The, the Pharisees and others had piled heaps of laws on top of that to make the wall between them and Gentiles thick as the day is long. Right? Okay. Is there a moral component to the action? Is it shaped by truth? Now let's go deeper, the motive. Because God doesn't only look at the actions we take. He looks at the motive for what we do. He looks deeper. What is my motive for doing this or not doing this? Is it faith in God? Could, can I do this in good conscience for His glory? Why do I say that? Because in Romans 14... 
Paul says anything not of faith is sin. If I don't believe before that this is right before God and that this is the decision He would have me make, it's sin. Anything not of faith is sin. Is it faith in God driving my choice? Is that what was driving Peter? No, it tells us what was driving him. Is it faith in God driving my choice? Here's the other alternative. Or is it fear of man? Is it fear of man? That's what Paul said up here. Fearing the circumcision party. You know what Proverbs says? Fear of man is a snare. Fear of man is a snare. What's the motive for what I'm doing? Faith in God or fear of man? And then last, I want to talk about the message. If I do this or don't do this, what message will it send to those that I have influence over? Will it help others or will it hinder others in relation to their walk with Jesus? If they're unbelievers, will this help them see Jesus more or less? If, if they're fellow believers, will this encourage them or cause them grief? In Romans 14, talking about meat offered to idols, which in and of itself was a great decision for each one to make before God. But what did Paul say in verse 17 of Romans 14? He said, listen, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And here's where you think about the message of what Peter did. Was that upbuilding that precious fellowship in Antioch? No, it was tearing it apart. That's why Paul stopped it in the gap, thank God. One more message question. Does this action I'm about to take or not take, does it further the message of salvation by grace, through faith in Jesus alone? Or does it speak against that message? <clears throat> when I ask us to think about our own lives here, you think about love and truth. And we know biblically they go together, but this world often separates the two. Let's call it compassion and truth for a moment. Which one are you stronger in? Because we should have both. Right? We should have compassion for people. Is that where you're strong? Or is it speaking the truth? Do you speak the truth without love for people? Do you have compassion for others in your heart, a feeling of sympathy, but you hesitate to speak the truth because of what they might think? God, where would you have us grow that we might walk in that balance? I want to close with words from someone who knew what it was to, to battle for truth. Martin Luther put his very life on the line to battle against the human works that had been piled on the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet he speaks about the balance between love and truth. He calls love charity. I want to close with his words. He says, let this be then the conclusion of all together, that we will suffer our goods to be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have, 
but the gospel, our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never suffer to be wrested from us. And cursed be that humility which here submitteth itself. Nay, rather let every Christian man here be proud and spare not, except he will deny Christ. And if that word proud makes you uncomfortable, don't forget that later in Galatians, Paul says he boasts. In what? In the cross of Christ. It's okay to boast here. That's good and right. Wherefore, God assisting me, he said, my forehead shall be more hard than all men's foreheads. Some of, you, some of our wives are saying, my husband been praying that prayer. <laughs> my forehead shall be more hard than all men's foreheads. Here I take upon me this title, according to the proverb, Sido Noli, I give place to none. Yea, I am glad even with all my heart in this point to seem rebellious and obstinate. And here I confess that I am and ever will be stout and stern and will not one inch give place to any creature. Charity giveth place, for it beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, but faith giveth no place. Now, as concerning faith, he closes, as concerning faith, we ought to be invincible and more hard, if it might be, than the adamant stone. But as touching charity, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken with the wind and ready to yield to everything.